Welcome back to the Doomer Optimism podcast. We have Brendan from Posterity Ciderworks here and Peter Allen co-hosting with me. Um, I just thought uh, Brendan hasn't been on. We've talked on Twitter quite a bit um, and it, I thought it would be good to give him an opportunity to talk about his um, his whole business and his project and his orientation um, and then to critically interrogate uh, that all of those things and how things work um, both from my end and from Peter's end, who's doing something similar, but different products. Um, so welcome, Brendan. I'll let you start by introducing yourself and talking a little bit about um, Posterity Ciderworks, and then we'll just sort of jump into to conversation. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks. It's cool to be here. Um, so yeah, my name is Brendan. Uh, you you might also know me as Intractable Lion on Twitter. Um, and yeah, so we have a, a cidery. We focus on low intervention, um, as additive-free as possible cider. Um, we want to make stuff that reflects the place that it's actually grown. Um, and a lot of time that means finding abandoned trees, old orchards, um, wild stuff. Um, and we're in California where it doesn't rain. And so we actually do get some pretty cool climactic effects. Um, and microclimate is real, terroir is real. And we really try to highlight that wherever we can. That's cool. So I guess like to back up, let's say this is the first episode um, someone's listening to. And um, a lot of people come to us totally new to like even the concept of regenerative ag or, you know, I don't know, more ecolo ecologically sound um, production practices. So why, like, do what is your philosophy behind um, how you approach your production and why? And then we can dig in, in more. Yeah. That is, uh, that is a really huge topic that I am trying to write a like cider and orchard philosophy page for our website um, and slightly struggling because it's such an encompassing topic. Um, so yeah, I mean, it really starts with when I started making cider um, and uh, we had a little house in Half Moon Bay, uh, just south of San Francisco. Um, and there were eight apple trees and three pear trees on the property. And I started making cider and it was just really bad cider. Um, and I was not getting the flavors that I wanted. I was getting like, just, it wasn't what I wanted. Um, and so I slowly just started chucking the advice and the received wisdom that uh, went into making it. Um, it was the first time I'd made it. So I listened to some friends and people who are, had more of a homebrew background or like, you know, the the homebrew community treats it as a really fucked up beer. The wine industry looks at cider as a really messed up wine. Um, and so like those things together uh, do not lend themselves to, um, I would say the style that I wanted to do or to something that's really honest about the ingredients that are, are actually involved. Um, and so I just slowly started diving deeper and deeper into how do I want to make this? Uh, what uh, received wisdom is terrible? Um, and how do we move past that? Um, and yeah, started to develop a style after a couple of years of doing it. Um, that was, in essence, low intervention without ever even really coming from like a natural winemaking space or like the low intervention um, style is like a whole movement around it as a philosophy. And I kind of just got there um, naturally, um, through trial and error and figuring out what I actually wanted to be doing. 
um, without ever seeing it as a necessarily un holistic philosophy to aim for. I just sort of uh, assembled bits and pieces of like, well, that's a terrible piece of advice. Let's do it this way instead. Um, and oh, that's closer to what I want to do. Like, uh, let's let's lean into that and go even harder. Um, and so yeah, at this point, um, every single batch of cider that we do is different. Every tank is unique because it's a different blend of fruit that's coming in from all these various orchards um, in a given week of harvesting. Um, and in some cases we get to do really fun stuff like it's a single orchard cider and in other cases it's even more granular than that it's a single tree um, and I think that is super interesting um, that's what I want to be making um, and you know that just lends itself naturally to the localist style uh, movement the low intervention movement um, the fine wine making perceives that at its level when it speaks about terroir and you know you've got that like oh this was clearly grown on a south facing slope and and you know like people take the piss out of that for being pretentious but it's also like real when you do start to get uh, that granular and actually inspect something deeply at that level, it does become real. Um, and I've, I've, I know I've threaded about that in the past of like just comparing the same apple variety, the Arkansas black um, grown in three different locations in the Sierra foothills with about 35 miles separating all of the various uh, uh, orchards that they're grown in and how they are distinct from each other um, and distinct from the same variety grown conventionally down in the Central Valley. Um, and that's one of those um, levels of discernment that you lose as scale starts to increase, um, where like if you're homogenizing, you know, 100 pounds from this orchard, 100 pounds from that orchard uh, with three tons from a mixture of conventional orchards like that, that level of discernment vanishes. Um, and it is fake. It's like, no, that's not, that's not an effect. What are you talking about? Um, you're crazy uh, because it's gone now. <laughs> and so that's one of the beauties of being uh, where we are is that, you know, if I wanna make a five gallon batch homebrew style, uh, I'm still making that stuff. Um, and most of our batches are a little bit bigger than that. Um, and we've managed to find a way to still um, hew to that kind of philosophy of like, let's talk about how this is different from other stuff that you might've seen. Peter, do you have something to add? I have a kind of a question for you if you don't have something. Um, no, I mean, that's, I totally get that. I mean, we have similar issues in that, um, you know, we sell grass-fed beef and we slaughter it multiple times in the year. And, uh, you know, you go to the store and like a pound of hot of hamburgers, a pound of hamburger, like they're all exactly the same, whether, you know, the meat's coming from Australia or New Zealand or California or Texas, like it all kind of tastes the same. But we, you know, we slaughter different times of the year. So we have, you know, the, the meat from a, a beef that's slaughtered in the peak of the growing season, they're fat, they're well marbled versus one in the winter, they're being eating hay, especially at the end of the winter when the hay starts to lose its nutritional quality, like they're a lot leaner. It actually has more flavor in it. You know, you have to chew more and people don't ne necessarily like to chew. <laughs> um, so like uh, finding customers that appreciate like the realness of the product as being like from one farm in one place that has variability through the season 
um, people just aren't used to that as a concept. And so, I mean, for us, there's a lot of education that goes along into like, you know, I write a newsletter with our product every month. And so there's a lot of like education, like, well, this is what's going on this month. This is what the weather has been like. This is why, you know, we have this meat available, but not this, or that's why this is going to taste this way instead of this way. And so, um, yeah, totally. whenever you're doing small scale in the face of, of, of big ag in, and dealing with customers that have only had their entire life with a conventional system, like they don't, they don't have any memory of the way it used to be. It's like their, their grandparents and great grandparents are the last ones to like remember, you know, any other system. So there's a yeah. lot of re-education that needs to happen for sure. Definitely. Um, we probably have a slight advantage with what we're doing in that um, I get to do tastings with people um, in the tasting room and we can kind of walk them through. I get to get way more in detail than anything that would ever fit on a label. Um, and I get to taste stuff side by side and you can kind of start to guide that, that perception, um, down to the granular level from what people are used to. And the fun thing is that I found that for the most part, when you get to do that, people understand it. Um, they figure it out really, really fast. Um, both because what we're doing is so different from the mass market commercial stuff that they've had. And the stuff is very different from like each batch is distinct from another batch. I've even got like, I've done a couple where um, it's one orchard and we split the batch between two different yeasts and people can see there's a radical difference in the flavor that comes out just by using a different microbe. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really rewarding to see that uh, connection start to happen for people. That's cool. The, the thing that um, I'm interested, one, one thing I wrote recently for this publication um, was about how craft culture has become this thing where it's perceived to be like only accessible for high class people. So like either producing it or consuming it whereas like historically some form of craft culture uh would be some way to get by in a low resource setting like you know mm -hmm. being able to produce for yourself and so it's really frustrating to me because a lot of people will be like oh it's all well and good to jam your own you know like what I put can your own jams or whatever but that's just like a bougie thing and it's just it's, it's very frustrating to me um because like for example like where I live in Uruguay a lot of people are involved in small like small amounts of self-production and it's um people who have less resources who do more of that which makes sense um so I don't know if you have thoughts on that either of you on this this high versus low thing I almost feel like we're in you know, like just macro, we're in this resource glut where people don't have to do this, obviously. So then they just think it's like either a high class thing or like an extremely low class thing, but it doesn't, it doesn't resonate at all with people in the middle. Um, but I have a feeling that, it, I, or I'm, I'm, I have a hope that it will come back and be more accessible. And, and I think it's extremely accessible, even if you don't have a ton of resources. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's tricky because um, in a lot of ways, uh, at least for us, like we are, are, we are a premium brand in terms of our price point. Um, and a lot of that is driven by in order to fly in the face of the mass market super commercial products um, that are in a lot of ways artificially cheap. Um, you basically have to, uh, on the one side, put in more effort 
Um, and so things have to cost more. Um, but then on the other side, like, you know, it's, <laughs> you're, you're competing against something that is artificially cheap. Yeah. Um, and so like from the get go, you seem like you're too expensive <laughs> and you're, you're bougie. And then on top of that, there's the fact that it is also harder to do what you're doing at that granular level. Like I spend a lot of time hunting for these places. Um, and when we get to these orchards and stuff that are abandoned, like it's, probably six to 10 times slower uh, to harvest the same volume of fruit from these places as it would be from a conventional orchard. Um, and the reason we're doing it is because um, there is something special about that fruit that we think we can highlight. Um, but obviously, you know, 10x your labor costs and try to keep the price flat with something that's subsidized by like cheap petroleum and a uh, $10 million facility. Like it's, <laughs> you're automatically like way too expensive for yeah. people who are expecting like, you know, cider should come in a can. The can should cost $2. It should be really, really sweet. Ground beef should be like two bucks a pound. Um, what do you mean it costs more? Yeah, yeah. I Well, uh, my solution to that problem is that both this stuff should be expensive because it has way more labor costs and also people should be involved in self-production. And if they were on like a homestead scale or even, you know, at a, at a home scale, then it would be very cheap for them to be like going and gleaning themselves if they wanted to put the labor in and make this stuff themselves at home, oh, like almost right. free. And then if they want to get it from you, who's like got this huge attention to detail, it should be very expensive. I have this friend <laughs> on Twitter, uh, Hamilton, who's like, I don't know how to price my eggs like that I I my my he's got a really nice homestead that I'm that I make at home. Like either they should be like a hundred dollars a dozen or free to people I want to give them away to like <laughs> like there's no in between yeah totally it's like I put so much effort into them they should be very expensive if I'm trying to make any money or I should just give them away to people because I like them I don't know Peter do you have thoughts about this the um, high versus yeah low I mean, culture it's, thing. I, it's a it's a very you know this problem uh penetrates into all dimensions of the economy right it's it's food, it's, um, you know, clothing. If you want to start, you know, we've got a friend that started a wool mill down the road. Uh, this used to be a very big wool producing area. There were sheep on all these hills. And once World War II happened, like all the grazing stopped and just went to big ag. And it's really difficult because it's either got to be like you're competing with this artificially, you know, petroleum based fibers for the, for, you know, for wool. And it's like, polyester is like free. I mean, it's so cheap versus wool that you have farmers that are taking care of these animals like right now. And it's been this way basically for like 30 years, the cost of getting a sheep shorn for wool costs more than the value of wool that the sheep shearer shears off of that sheep. Yep. So right. like, to me, that's like encapsulates this problem, right? Of like, we have all these artificially low prices for the mass market products that everyone is used to. And if you wanna do any alternative that's thoughtful, uh, good, good for the environment and sort of, you know, provide some kind of meaningful uh, occupation for a human being, then it's going to be this incredibly expensive product. If you wanna like grow sheep, shear them, and then uh, 
and then knit that wool, like spin the, and spin the wool into yarn and then knit the yarn into a sweater and then sell that sweater. You're going to be a sweater maker, right? If you're going to pay yourself like say $10 an hour, that sweater has got to cost a thousand bucks, maybe more, a <laughs> thousand bucks, right? I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. and, it, and then you get to that point, you either have to charge $2,000 for it or you're going to do it as a labor of love and you're, you're going to give it to your grandma or you're going to give it to your grandchild or you're going to give it to your daughter or whatever. Um, it, there's no, there's no intermediate. And, you know, we face that a lot with our beef because it's a high price point relative to what's in Walmart, which is like super artificially cheap. And you got to, and you also have to fight with the, the marketing gimmicks of the big corporations, which will label something as say grass fed, even though it's coming from a feedlot, right. Or even, yeah. even more benign things. I mean, uh, the, the corporate headquarters of organic Valley, the corporation is just right up the Kickapoo River for me. And they have an, another brand called Organic Prairie that sells meat. And it's basically um, basically cold dairy cows uh, that are fed a high grain diet their whole life. They also import uh, grass, they also have a grass fed line that they sell, sell. So you can go to our local food co-op and buy a grass fed hamburger. And it is for like six bucks a pound. And it's marketed as a local product because Organic Valley is a local corporation, but 100% of that meat comes from Australia, New Zealand, 100%. So people go in, buy local grass fed meat for $6 a pound, uh -huh. and then come to me like, what are you doing selling it for 10 bucks? Like you're, you're crazy. Yeah. You know, why would I ever pay that? And it's like, well, you're, there's so many subsidies down the line to like make that work. And so many efficiencies of scale. Like I'm just one guy on a hundred acres. Like I'm not, you know, a, a giant multinational corporation. And uh, it's just, unfortunately, it just kind of has to be that way for now. Now, when we look into the future and see like what's coming down the pike, you know, there's a chance that things might shift pretty substantially uh, with increasing energy costs and whatnot to where, a lot of those cheap products are going to become scarce and therefore expensive. And if we can, if we can front end this coming, you know, crisis by getting more production happening at small scales on the ground by human beings, then there's a chance that we could actually have enough food to feed people um, in the coming years. But uh, and 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 then 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 all the dynamics change, right? And we're living in a period of time where. Uh, people are spending the least amount of money for food ever in the history of humanity. Like it's something like 10% of people's annual income goes towards food. And historically, it's always been like 50% or above. And so if, if, if larger dynamics start to change, then, then, then our dynamics are going to change as small scale producers, because there's going to need to be a lot more of us. And then people are going to have a lot less money. So it's going to like the, 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 the divergence between these super cheap things and the expensive things. It's like, everything's going to be like expensive and, or, or cheap. And because there's not going to be an inflation anymore. So things could change. And I'm kind of like playing a little bit of a waiting game where it's like, I understand that right now, my only option is to sell to like, pretty well, you know, financially enabled people. Like I can't sell my meat to, you know, in the poor neighborhoods. Like I just can't do that. Um, but that might actually change uh, in the coming years. Brendan, I know that you um, have had quite a bit of um, interaction with weird bureaucratic 
label like label <laughs> issues and I would love to hear some inside baseball on that like like just being able to label your products as local or I don't know how it works in the cider world so tell us yeah I mean so it's it's very complicated yeah so um all alcohol labels get reviewed uh by a government office um and the issue that we really run into is that um in the alcohol world, anything that is indicative of place and technique has largely been co-opted by the wine industry. Um, cider disappeared for like 80 very critical, highly bureaucratized years. Um, and now all of the regulations have essentially been captured. Um, and so we run into issues with like talking about terroir, talking about uh the place of origin mattering to the flavor, um, we have to be very oblique about it. Um, and in a lot of cases, it doesn't really wind up on the bottle. It winds up in the spiel that I give people when they show up at the tasting room or when they're shopping for bottles. Um, and I can actually talk about some of that stuff um, that's part of the process that has an impact that is part of that, like, you know, consumer education teaching people to perceive those granular boundaries between places um and yeah i just have to be very oblique about it because it's Wait, so what yeah what happens like why can't you say those things like what are the consequences <laughs> of saying them uh they basically uh the government will flag your label and they won't um give you approval to print it um and if you do print it then you face like fines or potentially uh, lawsuit uh, liabilities by making a claim that could be considered false on your label um, and printing it anyway. Like, so the office the office is there to protect the consumer um, from fraud. And the challenge that we wind up with is that I actually can't say things about our cider that are accurate because it would be fraudulent because those terms are now only allowed to be used to describe wines um and yeah it's it's fun uh <laughs> that's so insane because like i mean your whole mission uh, like me me as an outsider saying is like a you know about trying to bring cider back and cider's like this uniquely american thing not uniquely but it's you know hugely heritage american kind of thing um and and just like part of your mission is just, you know, talking about how, how, you know, this product comes from a place and a set of practices and all of this kind of thing, like, and you're hamstrung to be able to describe that, like widespread to the customer via label because of this like regulatory capture. That's so frustrating. It's, it's not awesome, I would say. Um, but yeah, like, you know, people... The, the encouraging thing is that people can see it and they do understand it when you get a chance to interface with them face to face about it. Um, it's it's something that's immediately perceptible if if we're doing our job right. Um, it's just a much smaller scale. <laughs> it's not like on every label that you can see when you go to the cold case at one of our retailers. Um, it's something that we can talk about more obliquely. Um, okay. And I mean, ideally, like the, the product stands for itself as being something that is immediately recognizable as being different um, to a lot of people, um, even without necessarily getting that one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, the person who made it. Um, 
yeah, I mean, the hope is just that they open a bottle that they get at the, the retailer and they say, this is really different. And then they try to find out more about us. And that's where we get to be like, well, you want to know why it's different. This is why. Yeah. Um, so earlier you were talking about the set of practices, like as you were, as you were um, developing what kind of practices you wanted to, to use in your, you know, production. Um, is there a sense where like, I don't know, this is kind of for both of you, but maybe Brendan, you can go first, but um, is there a sense where you just kind of like get a sense of how things are done conventionally and just like, what is inside you governing whether or not to, to follow those conventional ways of doing things or not? Like, you know, for example, we had this woman, Dow Ryan on, and she was um, doing restoration ecology work. And she just realized when she got into it that they were just spraying Roundup all over everything. And she was just like, uh -huh. this is horrible. <laughs> I don't want um, to, to take part in this. There's gotta be some other way to do this work. And then she went down like a whole path and wrote a whole book like about a different way to do um, restoration work. So I'm wondering, like, do the set of practices just kind of like reveal themselves to you? And then then like a side question that's related, um, how do you navigate what is good information and what is not good information? Like, <laughs> it's so hard. You're in this weird world where, um, you know, there's like conventional information and then there's people experimenting who are like you, but then you don't know how much those people know or if they're like worth following. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's happening here yeah. in Uruguay to us a lot where we're um, we're like, well, what do people do here? And then we're trying to find out like, well, but have they always done that? Or is that something new that they're coming to um, that's mixed up with some like also industrial way of thinking or not like so it's it's just really like a confusing time. So what like what how are you making decisions basically as you're as you're going forward in your business? Yeah, so um I would say that a lot of it came out of just the straight aesthetics of what we were doing and what I was looking for without really being able to pinpoint it. Um but yeah, a lot of it was was circumstance and I think we would have gotten to the same place eventually. Um, but essentially, uh, we moved up our timetable, uh, pretty dramatically. Um, so we, I've been making cider for probably two and a half years or so. Um, I finally made a batch that was good enough that my wife thought it was good. And, um, you know, the, the wives keep us honest. Um, <laughs> and she was like, okay, this is, this is actually pretty good. Maybe you're not totally crazy. Um, and so we started looking for property, um, and we found our place um, and spent about a year just like, I don't know what we're doing here. Like, let's just get a feel for the place. Um, and then we had a revelation about like, okay, I think the orchard should go here. Um, and when the orchard first started going in, I was not super sophisticated in terms of the, the planting practices. Uh, like to be really upfront about it, I was like using a fairly not super standard because it's fallen out of favor, but like not a particularly unusual rootstock. I was using mostly M111 because I had read that it was tolerant of heavy soils and uh, somewhat drought tolerant. Um, and like, cool, that's what we need. Great, let's put it in the ground. Um, and 
you know, some of those trees, uh, especially the way that we were, we were planting them, even then, um, you're looking at a first real crop after maybe five years in the ground. Um, and then about a year and a half after that, uh, my wife and I both got laid off in the same month. And we were like, I think that's a sign. Like, I think we're done with the Bay Area, man. Um, and so the timetable got pushed up way faster than our orchard actually could have borne anything for us to make cider from. Um, and so at that point, we started looking for those local resources, um, which had always kind of been in the plan. Um, but yeah, we definitely dialed up the speed on that. Um, and then it's just sort of uh, followed on from there. Like once you start looking and seeing some of this stuff, it's really hard not to see it and not to go deeper. Um, and so like when you find an orchard that you know, the, the trees were planted in the 20s. The last time anybody lived on the property was the 50s. Um, and the trees are still there. They're still cropping. And they've been, you know, essentially they've been dry farmed. They've received no fertilizer. Nobody's been pruning them. Nobody's done any foliar sprays. Nobody's controlling for bugs. And you're getting 400 pounds per tree. Like you have, you've got that uh, evidence right in front of you of a different way to grow stuff. Um and yeah, so we started, I just started uh, being fascinated by that. And like, what, what does it take for an apple tree to hit 50 feet, totally ignored for a hundred years? Um, and then it's, it's seedling genetics. Like that's a seedling tree. Um, it's got a taproot. It has um, a distinctive genetic makeup from its neighbors. So you're controlling for disease in a lot of ways. And it all just starts to bootstrap from there of like, um yeah the, the philosophy just really sort of came together um and so now at this point for the most part everything that i'm planting is going on at least some seedling rootstocks um because that's what i want i want stuff that you know we're in california it doesn't rain for five six months um you don't want to be growing stuff that needs that steady trickle of water every day the way um the dwarf orchards down in the central valley are planted um you know they're putting they're putting 700 trees per acre. Uh, each tree is getting a gallon a day. Um, they can't find any of their own water because, you know, the trees bred to crop in two to three years. Um, it's growing maybe a foot down into the soil, maybe two feet, three feet, if you're really, really lucky. Um, and there's so there's just and in the same way, like once you start to commit to that style of management practice, everything just sort of snowballs there as well. Like you're locked into a high input stream, you're locked into artificial fertilizers, you can't bring in silvopasture because your trees are super, super close together, and they're not tall enough to be outside the browser site, and then you have to set up fences, and like that's never going to happen. So you're locked out of those choices. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think to some degree, whenever you're doing something real, if you're being honest with yourself, um, there is a whole uh, constellation of choices that you start locking yourself into um, on the conventional side and on the non-conventional side. Um, and so, yeah, our, our practice has really started to grow from that discovery of like, this is out there, this is really interesting. Um, and again, the aesthetics are, are a huge part of that. Like, you know, when I find an apple that does have a name, most of these orchards, like I'll never know what they're growing. Um, they're so different from the same cultivar under conventional cultivation um, that I will never be able to ID them. Um, and, but, you know, sometimes we do find something like a wine sap or like a red delicious or something that is a fairly old variety 
Um, it has a name. Somebody has kept the records together. And when I look at the sugar and the acid levels, we're like 20, 30, 40 50% outside the normal range uh, for those. Um, and so it's it's an unrecognizable beast. Um, and part of that means that it's a really, really interesting flavor that you've got to play with that way. Um, and so, yeah, like the, the decisions all kind of come together yeah. um, and, and lay out a path. Um, I, I have a follow-up question for you on that specific, but I wanna hear um, Peter's answer to this question. Like I've heard a couple of people say this aesthetic thing and that's like, that's not an argument that um, like a lot of rationalist type thinkers use, but I feel like it's such a strong argument, but then also just like the practical realities um, that emerge on a small scale, like as a, as a guy just trying to run a business. But um, what, what are, you know, what have been, I don't know, your, your guideposts, Peter, for that kind of question. This is the question about um, like sort of conventional wisdom versus. Or just like, how did you decide to do the things, run your your um, grass fed beef operation in the way that you do? Like, you know, how did it come to be that you didn't just run an, a conventional uh, business and and like, you know, yeah, I guess just f fundamentally, like what's behind the philosophy? Is it aesthetic I know for you it's a lot environmental yeah I mean my I never planned on starting a farm that was never my intention any time in my life I ever thought I mean even up until the like a year before we started when I was finishing my PhD like I didn't even like that didn't even really cross my mind as a as an option for the future I was like going to be a professor mm -hmm. um so you know my, my mission was to like restore ecosystems uh, and to like help other people do that so it could happen at larger scales. And so starting a farm for me was just finding to, as a, uh, at basically testing my own theory, which was that if we could manage a certain specific way that restored these ecosystems, we could produce uh, meat or, and other products as um, uh, profitable enterprises that could then sustain uh, those ecosystems into the future. Um, and that would provide livelihoods for the people that were necessary to do that work. Um, so it was kind of just a test to see if that worked. And then, you know, once I figured that out, then it was like, okay, well then, you know, I got to choose some like key enterprises to like hold down the ship, right? I can't do like a little bit of everything. I've got to just like pick a few things. And so with, you know, there's grass fed beef. So it's like, okay, there's grass fed beef. So then I like research all the people, you know, Greg Judy and Joel, Joel Sal and all these guys have done grass fed beef. And then there's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's the conventional wisdom of say cattle farming. Like all my neighbors are like 70 plus year old guys that have been cattle ranching like their entire lives. Uh, and so they know a lot, right? But it's all conventional. And then there's the alternative, like the grass fed or rotational grazing, which has been around long enough that there's kind of a conventional wisdom around that. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost become conventional. Like the, the pioneers that like write the first books, like everybody just copies them. And then there's like the way to do grass fed beef. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, I do things a little differently because I, I, my, my, I have a different goal. Like my goal isn't just to produce grass fed beef. I have these other goals. And the good thing about that is that in our systems, I get pretty immediate feedback. Like, you know, usually within a year, if I try something, I'm going to know whether it worked or not, you know, my animals are going to get fat or they're not. I'm going to like, you know, every time 
I go to pick up meat from the slaughterhouse after a, a, a batch of steers has been processed, like I see their ribeyes and it's like immediate feedback. Like, did I do a good job finishing this batch of beefs or not? And we also have cows and calves. And every season I, I see their condition and their bodies and whether they have parasites or not, how much the flies are bothering them. Like all these are feedbacks on my management. Like, am I doing a good job or not? Um, and we do a lot of genetic advancement. So I, I cull a lot in order to be able to like have better genetics um, and, and, to, and to basically make the genetics of our cattle over time, like perfectly suited for our place. And if there's an animal that gets parasites and isn't thriving, well, I'm going to get those genes out of here as, as quickly as possible. And if there's one that's particularly just thriving in our environment, then I might save her calf as, a, as our next bull, herd sire. And so there's so many opportunities for feedback when we're actually like paying attention to what's going on as opposed to, you know, reading a book and following instructions like it's some kind of a, a manual and then just going through the motions in our day kind of clueless about, you know, what the effects are. And so uh, to me, like, you know, being able to recognize and then act upon that feedback is like the most important part of my job really and being able to, yeah, to totally. discern what you know what caused what and then what i can do to improve uh going forward yeah i totally get that i mean we do something similar in terms of the the apples that we find as when we find these abandoned properties what in some sense we're seeing is those individuals that can survive that kind of neglect and by neglect it just means experiencing the actual environment here without artificial support um and so like those are those are the genetics that you want to start looking at um and so we take cuttings from the wild trees that we find especially the wild trees that are you know they've never received an ounce of human care and they've lived 60 years of California summers. Like those are the genes that you want to start bringing in. That's what you want to start building the next round of seedling rootstocks off of. Um, and yeah, so we, we pay a lot of attention there as well, because again, like places are different. <laughs> um, and I can't, I can't make that argument about the consumable side of things without also making that same argument about the actual experience of living in that place, needing different things and being fundamentally different. Um, I have a, I have oh, kind of go, a, go. Yeah, go. a funny story related to what you're talking about. I, um, we have a lot of um, uh, wild apple trees around here, both uh, wild crabs and, uh, and standard apple trees. And for us, when I'm, you know, doing uh, setting up orchards around here, I only, I like graft on the, the wild crab rootstock primarily because like what else, I mean, it's this, it's so incredibly robust here. Like there's no disease. And right. the interesting thing here is that they've co-evolved for quite a while with heavy, heavy grazing, both from deer and cattle. And so uh -huh. you actually see them most often in, in uh, pastures that were like heavily grazed and then maybe didn't have cows for a few years and then heavily grazed again. So like the seedlings got to get up above browse height maybe like 15, mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And now you've got this like beautiful orchard of wild trees. And I was, uh, I was consulting with a guy 
maybe 20 miles down the road who wanted to do, a, he was doing a silvopasture installation. He had an old hay field. He wanted to plant um, fruit trees in. And so we're walking through this hay field. We're kind of deciding where things are going to go and, and what, what varieties we're going to use. And he's like, oh, I, I want to use M111s. He's like, that's my rootstock. I'm going to do M111s. I'm like, all right, whatever. That's cool. And I'm like, you do see all these wild uh, apple seedlings shooting up in this hay field right now, don't you? And he's like, no, what are you talking about? So I start pointing them <laughs> out because on one side, on one side, on the other side of the, one side of the hay field was an old apple orchard, not an old apple orchard, but some wild apple trees. And then there were some woods on the other side. So the deer were crisscrossing back and forth all the time, planting wild apple seeds all over this hay field. And he had never even noticed it because it always, they always got cut. Well, it hadn't been, right. they hadn't gotten the first crop yet. So I'm like showing them, I'm like, there's literally hundreds of wild apple trees. Like, you can graft onto these. Like, it's going to be okay. He's like, I want M111. <laughs> uh, God, okay. yeah. I mean, and that's, that's just such a, a key part of it. And I mean, the funny thing is, um, right now, I'm getting most of my uh, wild crab apple rootstocks that I graft onto as, you know, uh, eight-month-old seedlings. Um, I'm actually getting them from a guy in like the northern Midwest, like uh, I think he's in like Indiana or thereabouts. Um, and what he focuses on um, is he breeds these trees for wild game managers. Um, yeah. So these guys who have 10, 20,000 acres that they have trophy hunts on. Yeah. Um, and so they're paying attention to forage just like a conventional livestock yeah. grower is. And they want to, you know, make sure that they've got like late winter forage for those bucks. And, yeah. um, and so this guy that I get the rootstocks from right now um, is one of the few people who is deliberately breeding and selling these totally wild crab apple rootstocks. And it's for, it's for game management. That's, uh, that's so cool. Um, so I have to um, bring this up, Brendan. So you and I disagreed on this thing, um, probably because you're more of a nerd about this and, than I am. Um, but there was some guy, there was some like viral story about a guy who like saved quote unquote X number of apple varieties. <laughs> um, and I was like, uh, oh, look at how sweet this old guy is. He saved all these varieties. And Brendan was like, no, this dilutes our information that that wasn't it wasn't like um i i don't know you tell me what your your uh issue was with that because i think it's i think it's yeah. i think it's probably important and you and i can i conceded to you in the dms that that you're right but um, <laughs> but, uh, but let's let's litigate that because i think it's probably important for both of you um although on the other hand like maybe the the counterpoint is you don't even know what some of these varieties are um, that you're that you're um, finding in these other orchards but anyways you tell me uh, right the important yeah so I mean for me for me it really comes down to a curation issue um, and so my main problem with this is that when you see the story it's like this wonderful clickbait feel-good story like everybody loves a quaint old horticulturalist <laughs> um, it's super sweet and I think I mean in some ways that is a an amazing um like first step for a lot of people like everybody has this visceral reaction of that is sweet um and that's like a wonderful stepping stone to get people more interested in this stuff um but as someone who is more serious than that first blush um when you click on his website and you get into his catalog 
you wind up finding all of these factual errors um, with like where he's claiming to have found the original tree for a variety that's very well documented as to where it came from um, and never actually disappeared in the first place. And he's listing it as like, I found the, I found the original tree. I saved it from extinction. And it's like, dude, that's been cultivated. Like you could probably get five or 10,000 acres of that across the U S like that never went away. And it just, you see that multiple times and it essentially throws all the other information into question um, about like, okay, you claim to have found this really special variety that is extinct. Um, the last time you said that it was about something that wasn't extinct. How do I know you even ID this correctly? Like it might be something else. You might've mislabeled this like, okay, like it's a yellow bellflower wonderful but I can't take your word for that because you said the same thing about Arkansas black which never went away and like I don't know so for me it comes down to that like really really granular um data management side of like if you are providing a service that is fundamentally uh corrupted information um it's not a service anymore um and yeah, so if it's if it's a hobby project, if he just loves it, that's fine. Um, but what winds up happening is like he's offering grafts and labeled scions and seeds from these varieties. Um, and it winds up being, to my perspective, uh, that he's polluting the informational environment around a topic that is already very, very cloudy. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, like we're growing an apple in our orchard that vanished for about 80 years until it was uncovered in New Jersey. Um, and it's called the Harrison. Um, and I think it's a really instructive comparison because the guy who rediscovered the Harrison spent 25 years confirming it. Um, like multiple decades focused on a single variety. And then there's this other guy who's like, I saved 1200 different apples from extinction. Um, and I think that's just a really instructive comparison of the effort involved in actually doing it right versus just being like, I found an apple and the guy who owned the tree said it was this. So it's this and I'm putting it on my website and offering scions. Yeah, um, yeah. I do think like uh, on the, there is like this weird thing happening right now, whereas where academia is so um, discounted for so many things that people just like want to throw it all out but that doesn't mean like a lot of there isn't there is good information and less good information um peter do you are you um are you like a, a nerd about taxonomy at all no uh, no no <laughs> <You don't laughs> I, I appreciate it 100 percent um but yeah like i I don't get into the details and the weeds on that really yeah. ever. Um, okay, so I think one point where I think you two, or maybe, I don't know what the sides will be, but maybe it'll be me and Peter against Brendan, um, but on technology and like human progress, I think that you and I, Brendan, have disagreed on some things, but I don't think I've, I like understand more long form um what your position is on like human progress in general so I don't know maybe let's <laughs> talk, talk about that for a second um and see if we can disagree a bit we've been agreeing I think too much on this podcast <laughs> bring the contention <laughs> um yeah I mean I think uh I think a lot of our disagreement around that topic um is to a degree um 
kind of from that acceleration side of things. Um, and like, I think one of the threads that popped into my head was, um, I don't even remember what started it, um, but I like had a picture of a 300,000 year old Neolithic point. Um, and I was like, you know, this unconscionable uh, change to the way of doing things cannot stand. Um, because like for, you know, when you look into like Neolithic history, there's like a single style of uh, making these points that kept people alive that lasted for like 25,000 years before anyone changed anything. And like that change was radical and deeply upsetting to someone. And I think we're living through the exact same thing. It's just a slightly more accelerated time frame. Um, and I do think that that's really instructive to bear in mind um, that um, I don't necessarily think that the neo-ludism thing is wrong, um, but I do think it's important to keep in mind that it's a reaction to front-loaded negative externalities of these technological changes. Um, and those same negative externalities existed and have existed for our entire human history, right? Like in order to experiment with a flint point, someone had to waste countless uh, like flint nodes, chipping them wrong to everybody else's eyes. Um, and like at a certain point, like you you have to accept that this is, this is what we are. Um, we are a creature that changes the world. Um, and I understand the reaction against that. And I do think that it's a wise perspective. Um, but I also think that if we only listened to that perspective, we would still be getting eaten by tigers. Um, and that's honestly like, that's where that's where my, uh, my handle comes from is I was having a very similar argument with a friend um, about like these intractable social problems and like intractable problems and intractable this and like, you just can't solve it. And it's like, fuck it. Like, Literally lions were an intractable problem for us for a million years. Lions were a problem we didn't know how to solve. And now they all live in fucking zoos. Um, and like, okay, maybe that's too far in the other direction, but this idea that we can't find a balance with our environment, that we can't find a balance with the pace of change, um, I think isn't true. Um, and I think that if you're, if you make that argument fundamentally, what you're, saying is that humans shouldn't flourish in our environment um like realistically like if we if we follow the ludist argument all the way back to anarcho-primitivism then there's you know 20,000 individuals living on the entire planet um they live to 35 and like i i, I recognize your right to make that argument but i also think you're wrong they don't actually <laughs> live to 35 though that's just a fallacy about with that messes up the the statistics because of child um mortality but I mean, okay, Peter, do you have a counter counter argument to that? Um, no, I mean, I, I I essentially agree with that argument completely. But there's like there's like another side though, because like, you know, what is human thriving? Is like is like a it's like 20, 30, 30 something, like locked in a small apartment in a mega city like strapped to VR all day to like uh, to perform essential functions like is that a thriving human like like can can technological development go too far and not actually solve human problems but create more human problems and, and create absolutely thriving? <laughs> so I totally like, agree like there. it's like weaving that that uh that needle like trying to like get in between like 
the Luddite who wants like no technology for anybody and, and wants everybody to be like carding wool by hand to make their own clothing uh, versus like somebody locked in, an, in a mega city with, uh, with VR to perform essential daily functions. Um, like there's gotta be some intermediate ground where we can find some form of human thriving that includes like good technologies but, but, but still values like the human being and like what makes us human instead of valuing like technology as like the end point versus like a thriving human being as the end point. Right. I think, and I think um, I totally agree there. And I think what I'm trying to say usually when I get into that in an inflammatory way on Twitter um, <laughs> is that that's, that's an argument that we've been having with ourselves for millennia um, about like, you know, the guy who invents the spinning Jenny, like, is this human thriving? Like, it changes the way we're used to doing things. Like, the guy who wasted countless pounds of flint trying to make a lighter point. Like, there were people next to him that were like, you were wasting everyone's resources. How fucking dare you? Um, and it's a conversation that we will continue to have indefinitely. Um, and I think that the main thing that is valuable um, is to remember that we're not gonna solve it today. Like, and that's what I tend to see is like the reaction against says like, this is the solution and we can implement it immediately. Um, and I don't think that's a realistic uh, perspective. I think this is a conversation that we continue to have. We have these externalities that we start to see and then we adapt our behavior. Um, and I think that one of the main challenges is that the pace of change right now means that those externalities are making themselves known at a sub-generation scale, um, which is really where people start to get intense about things, right? Um, when we have changes in the past, it can take two, three, four generations before we start to feel like, okay, this is maybe a shift too far and we can shift back over the next two, three, four generations. Um, and I think where people start to get super intense is that acceleration side of things where, um, you know, the world of 10 years ago is unrecognizable today. And that's terrifying when you think about 10 years from now. Um, and so this desire to have an immediate solution starts to take over the conversation. Yeah, that I can, I can, I can admit that that that's a, I mean, it is a useful to not just be reactionary, like just because, yeah, just because there's some sort of change um, and, and uh, evaluate each change um, in and of itself. Like, is this actually solving any problems or not? Um, I personally think most of the time it's making more problems than it's solving, but um, but that I, I think it is useful to think um, on a case by case basis, like, is this actually helpful to us? Um, okay, yeah. so my final question, <laughs> increasingly I am like coming across like big name policy level and or like, I don't know, people who pull the level levers of power who are like getting involved in and or looking toward regenerative solutions. So um, I think of you two as like, like you should probably be secretary of like ag or whatever, both of you. <laughs> I just think of like this cadre of people we have on Doomer Optimism who are like so thoughtful and should probably just be in charge because they're so thoughtful. <laughs> um, I wonder if you, either of you have like, any kind of thoughts you could lay out to somebody listening here who's like, 
you know, what do we do from here? Like, what do we do on scale? Like, what 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 is the path from here to a regenerative future? Like, I know both of you are just kind of, you know, working on the scale of the thing that you're working on in your businesses. But um, like increasingly, I'm seeing people and like sometimes people coming to me almost like desperate, like what is the solution? And I, I'm feeling increasingly uh, driven to to articulate it clearly or ask other people on Doomer Optimism to articulate it. So I know it's a big question, but um, yeah, like what advice do you give to somebody like, I don't even want to put out a name, but you know, a, a big name person who has a lot of power and resources, who's like, tell me what your vision is. How, how, like, how do we move toward the world you want to see? Who wants to go? Are you, are you asking us to take <laughs> a tractable problem and make it tractable? Is that <laughs> what you're asking? Yes. Even if it's just a set I of mean, heuristics, like, you know, that people should be following or something. I don't know. Like the part of the, the thing is like, you know, uh, obviously I'll, I'll like talk for a second longer to give you a second to think, but obviously part of the problem is things like Sri Lanka or like, you know, Canada or whatever, where they're trying to implement a top-down solution very quickly. And it's just not well thought out. And obviously a lot of the stuff has to be bottom up and experimented with, like takes time to relearn how to be humans in interacting with nature, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I still think like there probably are things that are able to be articulated um, for those who are interested. Are you looking for, uh, for realistic uh, uh, suggestions or yeah. unrealistic, but probably more effective than realistic? Let's say, let's say, um, actually realistic, but with the help of somebody who ha actually has power and could and could implement sure. some some things. Yeah. All right, Brendan. Brendan go. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think. Um, I think in some ways it's a it's a moot point. Like there are a lot of forcing mechanisms that are starting to ramp up that are going to drive that change. Like here in California, like I just read a, a paper that said that in the next decade they're going to have to fallow five hundred thousand acres because of increasing uh, salinity, um, and then with another million following that in the decade after. So okay, one point five million acres going fallow because we're using uh, artificial fertilizers and flood irrigation with high evaporation rates uh, to water our crops. And like, that's a forcing mechanism. There are different ways of doing things that don't create those problems. And they're going to become more and more inescapable. Um, you know, we've got, again, you've got saline intrusion into the aquifers because we're overdrawing them in like uh, some places like Watsonville, Salinas, the South Central Valley, like there's a solution there and it's to use less water from the groundwater and more surface water in a smarter way. And like, again, that's dry farming, that's drip irrigation instead of flood irrigation, that's all of these things, increasing your soil carbon so that you hold hold moisture longer and you don't have to withdraw it as quickly. Um, and I think there's a lot of forcing mechanisms that have a very holistic solution. Um, and I think that the, the biggest issue on, I think the policy side is that um, like any kind of top-down policy is anti-granular, right? Like 
basically by its very nature. Um, and a lot of these places need granular solutions and have granular problems of like, you know, they have different infiltration rates and maybe that means that they need to take a different approach to their water strategy. Um, and I think the biggest single thing would be, I would say stop propping up the people who are having those problems mm. um, because the longer we find ways to supplement these systems that are failing, um, the harder the fall is when we can't supplement them any, any longer. Uh, the longer we're ignoring that forcing mechanism, the more energy is being built up in that spring, um, in that system to break loose. Um, and yeah. Peter? Yeah, I mean, in absence of just like blowing up the government and like removing all of these you know, artificial structures that keep everything in a very um, non-natural state. Um, maybe blow it up over a period of time so it doesn't kill so many people. Um, but that's the but, doomer side. What's the optimism? What's the creative? What do we? Well, no, we that, that that is the optimistic side because because then I mean, there's so many barriers. Like, okay, so we need. 10 plus million people out on the land growing food. Like we just need that like yesterday, just in North America, if we want to be able to feed the people that are already here in some kind of reasonable way, that's not gonna completely destroy things, right? And we don't, we can't have, that's not gonna happen overnight. That's gonna take generations to accomplish. And so in a, in a reasonable approach to thing, we would we would sit back and look and say like, okay, our system right now is really unsustainable. Like we've we're destroying, you know, all of our aquatic habitats. We're like the soil is completely dead. We can repair all of that, but like that's where it's at now, and we're losing topsoil at astronomical rates. So like we have major problems for like long term livability on this continent and on this planet, right? If we were to just say like, okay, tomorrow everything's got to change, like it would be catastrophic, right? Yep. So we need to like ramp, ramp down and ramp back up uh, small scale, you know, hands-on uh, regenerative agriculture. But there are so many barriers to that as long as the system is operating the way it is. So as long as the system is operating the way it is, you know, young people can't afford land. I mean, there's just, there's, there's exceptions. You can like make it work, but it's very, very hard. Right. And there's, there's just so many, there's so many barriers to that bottom up emergence that we're all kind of like hoping happens as long as the ship in its current configuration is, is sailing along just fine. And so like, how do you, how do you sink that ship slowly enough that it doesn't like kill us all and in a controlled way that allows for like an organic bottom up um, emergence of, of, you know, what we all know is possible. Um, that would be to me a pretty intractable problem because I don't see policy being even, you know, capable uh, I mean, I'm sure there's little things you could do here and there that would help, you know, maybe overcome certain barriers, but there's fundamental barriers like we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation with just the raw economics, like being able 
to like get on say 40 acres and make enough money selling something that you do in some kind of like organic regenerative way, making enough money to support a family is like next to impossible. And yeah, you could like make some policies, you could remove some agricultural subsidies, you could like subsidize homesteading, you could subsidize this and that. I'm, I'm skeptical of those as even being real solutions or even capable of addressing this problem because the, the problems are so fundamental to just the way the whole system is built. Like the only, you know, it's, it's like the system needs to come down, but that's so destructive that, that then it's like not, you know, then we can't even, you know, there's no customers left to sell things to, right? If the yeah. system comes down in a day. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough problem. So for me, it's really like, it's at a very like personal level. It's like every human being needs to figure out for themselves where they're at and where they wanna go and what the best means to get there is because I don't, I don't think there is a real policy or top-down solution that's gonna work in the time frame that we need it to work and considering all the, all the, the uh, I mean, there's, there's so many, uh, there's so much inertia in the system the way it is right now. Any, any policy changes around the fringes of that aren't going to change the fundamental direction that we're headed. So that means it goes down then to the individual level and just says, okay, well, what can I do with what I've got? And I think a lot about um, like generational wealth and in the sort of like my generation and the, the millennials, there's not a lot of wealth. Like we're just like, everybody's renting. They're just barely making enough to like make ends meet. Meanwhile, there's like the boomer generation that's got stocks, they've got, you know, retirement accounts, they, you know, they, they've got this wealth, right? And that is primarily located in the cities. And so I think a lot about how do we, how do we create mechanisms to, to basically transfer that wealth from the cities and from the boomer generations into the rural areas and into younger generations. Uh, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there, both at sort of like, in just individual families um, of young people sort of like tapping into their network of friends and family and creating like investment opportunities, especially now because everybody's freaked out about the end of the world and to have some kind of like a collapse insurance plan <laughs> by giving, you know, this young kid who wants to go like restore some land and, and, and grow some food by giving them like five or 10,000 bucks. Now I've got a place to go and shit hits the fan. There's there's just a ton of opportunities like that, that I think, um, you know, po certain policies or like NGO activity could sort of help grease those um, uh, wheels a little bit. But I think it ultimately needs to come up from the bottom up and just more and more people that we need to figure out these problems and, and create opportunities for themselves. Uh, but I do think there is, if we're looking at policies, uh, some opportunity uh, to sort of help uh, create mechanisms to make this transfer of wealth from the cities to the countrysides and from the older generations to to the younger. Yeah, I like that. Um, and I would just add my two cents, which is the, um, you know, education component. I think like uh, experiential education can be so fun 
And um, like just thinking about something like the like Burning Man type um, get togethers, but for things like barn raisings and and cider tastings and apple pickings and all of this kind of fun stuff. Like I do think that there's like a starting to be momentum, a, a wave of interest in these kinds of activities that are like more wholesome. Um, and I think as people get a little bit more freaked out as they are, um, there's more and more demand for that. So we'll see if that goes in that direction. Maybe people will make um, some kind of uh, more widespread educational institutions or there'll be like a million um, you know, uh, classes like you teach um, on your place, uh, Peter, um, where people can come and learn hands-on how to do these things from people who have been experimenting with it for a while. Um, I have one final thing that I need to ask Peter because um, I need to let him defend his honor. Um, the last podcast I recorded with Jason and um, a sustainable builder friend of mine, Matt Burke, um, Matt said at at like over something like 400 something or maybe 500 parts per million like your your brain doesn't work well um that it's like two something's going on where where you where you're breathing and it and it um and like it messes with your cognition and then Jason said like oh Ashley oh Peter Allen said 600 parts per million is some tropical paradise um and you love that so much so then I said Peter needs to be able to defend himself um, when you made a comment about 600 parts per million being, a, I think, the period of time where there was the most oh, I was, oh, I wasn't biodiversity saying, there, or something like that. There, you didn't say anything were, about humans thriving. I so didn't I, say anything about humans with that. I'm just saying that's peak mammal diversity. Yes, when you look okay. at the emergence of mammals 70 million years ago to now, the time of the time on Earth when there were the most different kinds of mammals uh, was... 20 or so million years ago, uh, and it was pretty high uh, CO2. Okay. Now, now impacts on human cognition, that is not, I, I've never heard of that. My guess is if it happened in a short or in, in a long enough period of time, we could adapt pretty easily to that. Like our, there's a lot of plasticity in how we handle chemistry in our cells. So we should be able to, you know, I could imagine taking somebody from like 350 parts per million and then putting them in a bubble with 600 would be very disorienting. But if it's happening, you know, even in a generational time frame, that our cells would adapt to that. I, I, that's not something I would personally worry about. I don't think we should get, I don't think we're going to get to 600. I mean, I don't think that's, I'm not advocating for that as some kind of a paradise. I never suggested good, that. Good, good, good. Well, you know how these climate change. Yeah. All I was so doing like, is, is that's just like a factual data point. I mean, that's just to consider among all the other data points that we have around us. Yes, um, and that's exactly. I also, exact, uh, I also sorry, point you, out that the uh, the uh, the 350, 400, 600 ppm is the uh, the global average, uh, not necessarily necessarily what it's like being in a room, um, which I think is probably where that's coming from is somebody with a CO2 meter yeah. who knows that when you hit 700 people get dumb. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's important to point out that this is, uh, you know, uh, two miles of atmosphere over the entire globe average. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, 600 ppm is what you'd experience on the daily uh, at ground level. <laughs> yeah, well, and that that's like the, the weird thing that always happens with these climate change debates is just like, well, if you say anything like that's against the narrative that it's just completely a catastrophe and everything is 
is definitely going to be horrible and is definitely going to happen to this kind of cat catastrophic level, whatever, then it's like, oh, you're just, you're just like drill, baby drill or whatever. So that was like, after your episode, I got into a few Twitter fights about this. I was like, Peter was just stating like a, an ecological fact. Um, he wasn't advocating one way or another and then whatever. So I wanted to give you a chance to uh, yeah, and it, well, it's funny because people, I'll get into arguments as well with people, and then it's like, but it's like, I've built two inches of topsoil on a, over 100 acres, I've sequestered like millions of tons of CO2, like, like, like I'm not, I'm not some guy out there, like, I'm not drilling oil wells. <laughs> like, You're doing the opposite. I know, yeah. I know. I'm taking trees that would otherwise fall down and turning them into timber frames that's going to sequester this carbon for, you know, 500 years. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, burning down the forests here or anything. I know, but. I hate, it's just, there's lack of all nuance with these debates. But, um, okay, Brendan, um, last word from you. Um, like, you know, how do people sign up uh, to, to drink your cider? Um, how do they find you? Um, yeah, plug, plug, plug yep. your business. Uh, PosteritySiderWorks.com. Um, we are allowed to ship to most states. Um, we have a cider club that's three shipments a year. We have a charter club that is if you just love what we're doing and you want to get 15% off uh, for life. Uh, you can do that one too, without signing up for any bottle minimum. Um, yeah, that's what, uh, that's us. Um, and then I also, I wanted to say one last thing, um, that I wanted to get into earlier when we were talking about like economies of scale and stuff. Um, and I think this is probably a great opportunity to get cut off. Uh, but, um, I think, uh, Jeffrey West of the Santa Fe Institute had a really interesting book about scales. Um, and he uses, uh, you know, the mammoth and the mastodon, um, Peter's, uh, bros, um, as an example of creatures that benefit from economies of scale while simultaneously raising the ca capacity of the landscape. Um, whereas I think a lot of what we see is more of a, an invasive species sort of analogy where something is exceptionally well adapted to the landscape to the point of lowering the carrying capacity. Um, and so I think that's something that's worth keeping in mind when we talk about like our businesses, how do we scale them? How do we um, explain to people that what we're doing costs more than the stuff that's artificially cheap, but it's better and it's more sustainable and it's probably a more realistic price to pay for stuff. And I think that's a, a valuable thing to, to bear in mind when we talk about like commerce and economies and how do we get people, more people doing this. Awesome. I love that. And Peter, just uh, drop your website um, too while we're at it. Yeah, our website is mastodonvalleyfarm.com. We also have uh, mastodonvalleyfarmschool.com where we uh, teach courses. We've got a course coming up, a regenerative farm design course. It's going to be awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you both for coming on. You guys are um, on the list for the um, Secretary of Ag or whatever for the <laughs> Optimism Federation um, of the future. So uh, thanks. I appreciate it. This was so awesome. I'm so glad you both came on and, and got to meet each other too. Um, okay. Yeah, for sure. It was a really fun chat. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thanks.